Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I hope everyone is enjoying the last few weeks of summer. It is. Don't got, say that. It Don't is, say last few weeks. Well, we've had it. We've had it good. We've, we've had, had it good. good. Almost um, too good in some places. Yeah, and um, it's it's noticeably getting colder at night. You were out last night. Yeah, it was five degrees on top of the hill. Yeah. In fact, t- tell people what you were doing because it was actually quite interesting. I was asking you about it this morning when we came to the office. I was catching moths. Um, I was uh, out there with the moth monitor for our area, and um, we were seeing what we could capture up on the hill. Unfortunately, we only got caught three moths last night. Not the biggest haul in the world, but it was still worthwhile seeing. Mainly because it was cold. Yeah, because it was cold. But you were saying that he found a moth very recently that had never been recorded before. In Angus, yes. Yeah. Yeah, in the northeast. Um, they had found the caterpillar and the the pupa, but they that had been recorded in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. But it had never the actual moth had never been recorded in in Angus, and that was found at the top of Mount Keen, so which is very close to us. Yeah. It's hard to believe that with all the research that goes on, that it's still possible to do things that haven't been done or record species that haven't been recorded in certain areas. But it's he, possible. Well, he, he said as well. It's it's also very possible because there's not many people actually doing it. So. So if you want to be a moth monitor, <laughs> yeah. get in contact with the show and I'm sure we can point you in the right Definitely. direction. Apparently there's events uh, around the country, but in particular the northeast, St. Cyrus and um, Montrose Basin yeah. hold events about monitoring and how you can get involved. Huh. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, I've got a puppy. Yeah, we have a new, we have is, a new addition this, to, this, the, to the office. In fact, he's almost about yeah. to pull my headset off. Two, oh, he's got it in the jaws, in the jaws of death. There we go. That's um, two years ago. You probably remember when Floki was a puppy running around the office, and now we have another one that I'm going to pick up and put upside down. Maybe this will disable it. <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh, it's, his the, name. The teeth are ridiculous. Is Torin? He is a sprocker. He's a quarter Springer and three quarter Cocker, black with a big white patch down his chest. And I bought him for my girlfriend a week ago. Nice. Very nice. Uh, and he's, of course, adorable and incredibly sweet, but he will be, Ow! hopefully, one day a useful hunting dog, but he's in that very toothy yeah, stage where everything is a hard bite. Everything. There's no... there's no. Um, it's like a crocodile. Yeah. Clamps down, won't let go. Uh, but that'll change, won't it? He's currently in my lap, upside down, because I'm trying to make him stop eating the podcasting equipment. <laughs> uh, but it's not working too well. He's largely been good, although I did stand in one of his shits this morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and walk it all over my carpet. And you had to so, power wash it. Yeah, I did. I, I took my rug outside and power washed it. I'm assuming Beth doesn't know about this. No, yeah. no, she does because she left for her meeting about the same time. Oh, that's horrendous. So she knows about that I was taking a rug outside to power oh, wash it. Oh, that's horrendous. So that was how my morning started today. <laughs> Lich, and of course, these things always happen as you're leaving. I was picking up my last bag to take it to the car just in time to get to the office. And I was like, I, I smell something. <laughs> what it's do a I bit smell? funny. It's a bit funny. You got to look out for those little curled ice creams <laughs> on the ow on the carpet. Um, <laughs> little landmines waiting. Yeah, they are oh, Ma- mines across your. We haven't had too many of them, fortunately. But he's he's pretty good when you take him outside to go and do his business. But 
Obviously, he must have snuck into the room that he thought was outside. <laughs> Enough about puppies for now. <laughs> and poo. <laughs> and poo. Um, we, we've had quite a few farmers messaging us with the podcast stickers on and asking for uh, podcast stickers. Uh, yeah, cheers. Cheers, guys. Yes, I know you guys are working uh, day and night right now to... Um, I think there's more tractors on the roads right now than there is cars on the back yeah, country roads. And and if you uh, if you see a tractor, just be patient with them. Yeah, you need to. They're bringing in your food. Yeah, it is. And farmers slow down a little bit through the villages. <laughs> Some of them are flying through it my village. It goes two ways. Yeah, it goes it goes two ways. Some of them are flying through where I live, and they must be doing 45, 50 mile an hour, and it's a 30 zone. And I'm not being funny, if you're towing a trailer full of grain, your stopping is probably not going to be particularly good. No. We uh, have actually taken our first pictures of the harvesting season. There was a bit of early harvesting going on, probably probably about when the last podcast went out. Yes. So we put up uh, one or two of those pictures on Instagram. But where we live, I mean, around us, we're completely surrounded and, and there hasn't really been a huge amount of activity, but I imagine it's imminent in the next two weeks. I believe so. I have it on good authority. Interestingly, I was speaking to a farmer friend of mine uh, the other day because I was trying to find out when he would be harvesting so we could go and take some pictures and video and stuff. And he was saying that it had been so dry that the crops had essentially stopped growing. And so they couldn't even spray them off in some places because there's no point spraying if if a crop isn't growing. And I wondered about three weeks ago or four weeks ago why I'd sprayed weeds in my garden and none of them had died. And I was very disappointed they by this. They weren't growing. They weren't growing. And I didn't realize that for the weed killer to work, the plant has to be actually sprouting. Yeah. And so because it had gone into a dormant state because there was no water... It didn't have any effect. But now we've had rains, and now I'm going to go and kill all the weeds that we've, are away um, in my garden. I don't know if anyone else has seen on the news the the state of affairs in Australia right now, where they're having a horrendous drought in uh, certain areas. They've had to kill a lot of cattle. Yeah, they? they are starving. I think I believe there's a lot of starving animals. Some of our Aussie listeners will be much more informed. They, they haven't really reported on it that much over here. Um so, yeah, if you uh, know a little bit more, just get in contact with us um, because I believe that they're sending trucks full of food and water um, to go and help them out. But, I mean, it doesn't uh, sound, it sounds yeah. really bad. I did hear an interview uh, with an Aussie farmer yesterday, I think it was. And as bad as the situation was in typical Aussie style, the first thing you hear at the start of the interview was him cracking a beer open. <laughs> so things are bad here, mate, but we're, <laughs> we're having a beer. Yeah. But it didn't sound good at all. Now, we have, um, of course, you're listening to this because we have another podcast. We have Jenna Gearing on today, uh, who is Rob Gearing's daughter. We interviewed Rob at Ewa sometime at the start of the year. Yep. So you've heard from him already. Um, she was actually in the background helping customers uh, when we did the interview with Rob. But now you're going to get to hear from her herself. Um, fascinating story about some of the things she got up to as she was growing up in South America. We talk about hunting, we talk about her sculpting, some of the amazing projects that she's been involved in, a bit of um, life advice as well, I think, in there somewhere. It is. Cover, cover, cover it all. Um, no, it's a, it's a brilliant a brilliant show. I'm not there, and it's explained in the podcast why I'm not there again. Um, it's just it's unfortunate really series of events. Series of events. I have not actually been involved in uh, recording of the the podcast. Um, so hopefully in the next uh, next one or two shows I'll actually be there. Well, maybe not because you're on holiday next week, and I need to get another podcast yeah, recorded. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, but Bef- we're not sure who's on next. Yet. No, we need to we need to work that out. Yeah, we do. But before we get to that, we have the winner. Sorry, I just got bitten really hard on the leg. 
with Poppy. We have the winner of uh, the competition from two weeks ago, which was to win a brand new edition of the Hornady Reloading Manual. Now, finally, all the stuff for the next, I don't know, six months plus for the podcast competitions has arrived. Boxes and boxes and boxes of it, of it came probably about two weeks ago. Uh, I know the gent who won the reload, the full-length reloading die a couple of weeks back. Sorry, that was incredibly sore the, on my the, hand. The, the puppy is like, like a velociraptor jumping <laughs> around is. and pouncing on things like that. Um, he, he has had his, he requested a 375 full-length Hornady reloading die, so that got sent straight out from Edgar Brothers to his address. Uh, I think I think he was from Australia, actually. Really? I think so. It was it was definitely a foreign address. It was either Australia or North America. I just can't remember. It was a few weeks back. Um, so that's gone, and this competition was to win the brand new edition. So there's a lot of all the new cartridges and new loads, and uh, some of the new powders are in there as well. And we asked you to show us I think what this time of year means to you in pictures. Yes. We had a whole heap of entries. We actually had a lot of entries come in before we put it on social because we mentioned it on the podcast, but we're late putting it on social media. But the winner is Paul Cantwell. Cantwell. I think I've got that right. Cantwell, it must be. Uh, so congratulations, Paul. Get in contact with the show, and we will get that reloading manual out to you. And for the competition for this podcast... Something slightly different, and Daryl's going to explain. Uh, so I, I still need to get the full details on this, but I was sent an email the other day, and it was from Paul from Scott Country asking if that we could donate um, a whole bunch of stuff for uh, a very good cause. Um, it's for a charity auction for um, an eight-year-old called um, Alfie who's been diagnosed with um, ALD, and unfortunately his condition um, is beyond a bone marrow transplant transport making it terminally uh, terminal uh, sorry there is a dog growling in the background here uh, because the puppy is crawling onto its head um, so what we decided to do is this uh, th- this time round for the competition we were going to donate a whole bunch of prizes instead of giving them out to you good you good people and they will go to the charity auction uh, so they're going to get a whole bunch of reloading manuals and um, CZ gear and um, so I hope everyone is okay with us doing that. We'll and put up a picture of all the stuff, but you can still be involved. In- yeah, you can still be involved in it. And um, the charity auction is going to be organized, I think, through Rifle Shooter Magazine. But if you want to be more involved in it, then definitely check out the Scott Country uh, Facebook page because they will be putting stuff up about it. So more details to come, and we will. Uh, when we put it. up a post, yeah. we can also direct you. We'll get some more info from the guys at Scott Country. Exactly, exactly. This just the, the this email just came in two days ago. So, um, but it's going to be a whole heap of great stuff, and it's obviously for an amazing cause. So, definitely do get involved. Yeah, definitely. And that's about all I've got for the show because I'm being put off a lot by my old dog who is being chased around the room. He's been incredibly, well, very intolerant when the puppy first came because he's not a big other dog fan. But he's gradually getting more tolerant. But unfortunately, Torrin is chasing him around the room right now. And all Tarka wants to do is go to sleep in his bed. That's what happens when you're an an old old dog, I guess. He just wants to be left alone. It is. Uh, Well, enjoy the next hour and a half. Jenna, welcome to the Interwilderness Podcast. You've had one hell of a journey to get here today because you weren't supposed to be here today. You were supposed to be here yesterday. Yeah, it's we've managed to come out on, I think, possibly the busiest Friday 
from the southeast. And it's taken us 12 hours just to get to the Lake District and only cover 350 miles. So that wasn't particularly pleasant. <laughs> so we were supposed to be recording this podcast yesterday evening. Well, actually, not even in the evening. We were supposed to be recording it yesterday afternoon in the <laughs> office with my brother. But since you arrived basically 24 hours later, uh, we are now at my house, uh, which is a little bit away from the office. But we do have beer on the table. <laughs> so beer is good. What, what you had, you've, you've headed up over the over the wall into the north for family holiday yeah we're, we're off um the big big group of us are off up big daddy g to big daddy g is <laughs> we're all up after rowing some fishing hopefully now we've actually had some rain hopefully there will be fish to catch so, I'm um, I'm hopeful. I'm trying to work out if I don't need to do work on Monday morning so I can go fish the river instead. You should. <laughs> but this is a, a yearly pilgrimage for you yeah, we come up to Scotland a couple times a year, but we always come up in August for the family bonding session, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is basically basically revolves around Dad doing his fishing and making sure that he de-stresses, so to speak. And then we kind of fit in around and then have, have lots of fun, drink too much, eat too much and and get to explore a bit of Scotland, which is lovely. So he's he decided uh, that the journey had been so stressful yesterday, he's, <laughs> he's zipped on up north, hasn't he? I even showed him the photo of the gin that you sent, and that wasn't even enough to tempt him. It wasn't, him. he said no. <laughs> he said, I've had enough of this drive now. No, it normally doesn't take quite as long, but that was it was quite horrible. <laughs> now, we bumped into you in, in Germany. At the early part of this year in March, and we had your dad on the podcast. Yes, uh, but we didn't. It was such. He was one of those manic shows that we didn't really have a chance to catch up. In fact, we were trying to have dinner the one night, weren't we? And we couldn't <laughs> even find a. We couldn't even find a seat in a restaurant. We got half an hour. They lit. I literally went in. I had to flirt with this old bloke that run the restaurant and said, "Please, can we come in and just eat? We're so hungry and so tired." And he said, "We've well, got half an hour to eat. This minutes. is what you're eating." And he literally went, "Here's some heart. Here's some sausages. And here's a load of um, sauerkraut." Shoved it on the table and went eat this it, we actually ended up in the same restaurant later that night and it was but it was good food mm. but you had to shovel it in in 30 minutes yeah yeah and there was like eight or nine of us sat around this tiny table made for four so that was quite entertaining uh, one of the we, we did have a chance to have a bit of a chat around the stand and one of the things that I wanted to start it was in my mind to start this podcast with was rewind time a little bit and talk about your time in South America because I was intrigued by that and we didn't have a, I didn't have a chance to really dig into what you had done there but I was I was intrigued by your experience how did that come about I know your dad likes to go there and do a lot of fishing yeah so when I was about 10 it must have been it was during the recession and my dad worked in aviation then so it's a very different company to what he now works in um, and he basically said to my mum who well, they were together at the time Let's go somewhere where the pound goes a bit further. And my school were wonderful. They went, sod it, just go. It's an amazing experience. You only get these experiences, you know, very few times come around, let's say. So we went off to Argentina for a good few months and got taken out of school. We're living um, in Bariloche, some and around that kind of area, a bit further south. And I've fallen in love with the country so much from a 10-year-old and then thought, I left school and I actually wanted to go and join the army. So I applied, applied to Sandhurst and I did get in and I got my place at Sandhurst. But basically, dad had said to me, if you want to go off and travel a little bit before you go off and do these things, because I also wanted to go to university and, and do the whole that whole kind of route, then you need to earn some money not just pulling pints. 
So I said, okay, fine, let me give it a, a go and he, I, I'll try an art exhibition because I've you know, always done art my whole life. I got a scholarship to my secondary school for it. This can go what one of kind two of, ways. What kind of art at that point? So it was it was ceramics at that point. So it was clay work, but three-dimensional clay clay work. And I always tested my, my teacher's patience by making things that are way too big and too little time and a bit too elaborate. <laughs> and actually, one of my first big pieces was a life-size um, war veteran, Henry Allingham, which is now residing in the Fleet Air Art Museum. So I, that, oh, I've been there. Yeah, so <clears throat> that was my first public... Um, public commission so to speak when I was I think I, when I made that when I was 16 17 wow and it's now in there and also in the readout war museum in Eastbourne so I was like right this this sculpting can go somewhere if I try let's give it a go and so I worked my little nut off and managed to get up uh, uh, enough of a uh, pieces that I could have a little exhibition so how old are you at this point uh eight 18, I must have been. So you, had you already put the military ambitions aside? No, that was still on the cards. Okay. So I wanted to go to Argentina, come back and then finish off my application. You didn't want to do that many things then? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew I wanted to do something that wasn't like, you know, it was a little bit more gung-ho than just going off and going to university and then going working in London, that type of thing. That follow, wasn't really following the sheet. Yeah. So I, and I thought that that's kind of ticking all the boxes for me. And so had my exhibition went way better than I expected and could afford my trip off to Argentina. And my, my best friend and I, we went off, bought a really crappy old car. Um, it was old purple VW. And <laughs> we, I think we got through about 20 tyres in seven months. Something like that. It was just ridiculous. We were oh, taking just this bursting tyres. Just popping tyres. We were taking this little old Volkswagen Passat on areas you wouldn't go with most most pickups you know? probably driving a bit too fast <laughs> crossing rivers like we got that our car got stuck in a river and i had to run and get a horse to pull it out that was i mean we were in the how middle many of people nowhere. have had their car pulled out by a horse <laughs> <Volkswagen> <laughs> that, just, that doesn't happen anymore no. <laughs> <laughs> but i was kind of you know so basically we thought let's save up all our money we'll buy a little car travel down to the remotest part we can find and, and so you're 18 years old and you're um, in South America with your mate. In South America with my mate, having the best time ever. And we said, let's go down to this particular estancia. It was a friend of a friend of a friend that recommended us. And we said, look, we don't need to, you know, we want to come down here, we'll work for our keep, but can you just provide us with a bed and, and the odd bit of food? The odd bit. <laughs> and, um, and the first estancia we went on was um, a hunting and fishing estancia. So they did a lot of reds and a lot of, and it was literally in the middle of nowhere in San Martín de los Andes. And um, actually, no, it wasn't, it was Junín de los Andes. And the way that the Argentinians work down there is they say, okay, turn right at the big tree, head down there for maybe, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and then turn left at the big next tree, and then turn right at the big stone. And somehow, I have no idea how we managed to find it. And we had, we were four days late. Our car, four days? Our, well, that's a little <laughs> bit more than what you were late here then. Yeah. <laughs> our car had broken down three times. Um, we had to have the, the the bonnet got stuck and we couldn't open it and then the um, radiator had broken and there was just two girls none of us spoke any Spanish at that point and we were just stuck in the middle of between some um, um, Buenos Aires and where we were going in Los Andes which is quite a long way in this crappy old VW Passat traveled all the way down there and eventually managed to turn up and they were like oh you, you're the English girls. We thought you might have died. And I was like... <laughs> did anyone uh, <laughs> search party maybe? Did anybody check? And within the first two weeks, I broke my phone. I was riding bareback on this this horse that I just jumped on. 
and cantering up this hill and it fell off, got smashed underneath the horse's hoof. And I was going, oh my gosh, the world is going to end. And then after about 24 hours, I was like, this is the best thing Didn't give a shit after that. So dad just sent me an email on this like dial up internet and said, just tell me that you're alive every couple of weeks. Send me an email, go, I'm not dead dad and I'll be happy and I'll I'll, I'll know that you're all right. What a great liberation though, (laughs) to be disconnected from the world like that. Mm. Because we're not used to it these days. So we're always at, we just reach into our pocket and the world is there yeah, on your phone. And we're too reliant on it. And I, for me, age 18, I honestly, I'm so glad. I just wish it happened earlier. So what was, you're 25? 24? 24. 24 now. I have to think yeah. about that. Yeah, no, <laughs> 24 now. So, so this six is, years ago. Yeah. And so I had my 19th birthday out there. Um, and we went from Estancia on the first Estancia for a month. Then we heard about this other Estancia. Went there, and the only way to so get are, they, to, are these like, like it's like a giant ranch. Ranches. Yeah, I mean a giant ranch. And the only way to get to the second one again, our car broke down on the way there. And what were you doing to your car? Everything. <laughs> How did well, you fix it? I mean, you've bro- broken down three or four times now we since had we've to been get talking. How did you fix tack it? And putty and shove it under the radiator because it was just pissing down out with water. Because we ended up going over this bump that it was a hidden bump. And we couldn't see it because we were off-roading and yeah. off VW Passat. Um, off, you know, really, really shouldn't have been driving there. And um, <clears throat> ended up going over this lump too hard and it pushed the whole radiator up through the bonnet. <coughs> and we could only travel. We had, I think we had about five litres of water in the back in just in case emergencies. And by the end, we managed to roll it up the hill, drive 50 metres. We'd have to stop, put more water in the radiator, try and push some uh, blue tech putty into it. And then keep going a little bit further and it was just going, oh my goodness, what are we doing? We're not going to make it there. Managed to find this little tiny hut which had um, one one woman working in it and she was just making a broth. Turned up there and she was like, oh, you're here then? We're like, yes, but our car is really like on, on death's door at the moment. And then to get to the actual stance here, it was a three hour horse ride. <laughs> So, <laughs> so no road, no, no like vehicle road. nothing. No, absolutely no nothing. And then we got, they literally just rounded up some horses. We jumped on the back of them and kind of just went went off and then went to the middle of nowhere. And it was just blissful. It was absolutely heavenly. And there it was, you could get on the internet if you had 15 minutes of patience. Wow. And so, and after that, I was just, it was just honestly So what were you spoiling. doing at that place? What, like what work-wise were you doing? So that there, it was it was helping with, um, they, they wanted to build this new, um, kind of like a shack up on the top of this hill. And so we'd have to get up. I mean, they literally said to us, hey, there's um, a couple hundred horses in that thousand hectare um, kind of, I don't, I don't even know what was a corral or what, but go choose the one you like the look of. I don't know when it's last been ridden, jump on it. and then <laughs> So I was like, yeah, brilliant, this is great. Went and got my belt, tied it around the neck of one of them, jumped on the back and just went off. And obviously it tried to bump me off a couple of times. Then we carried on going and eventually managed to get to the gate, use this horse, um, tacked it up properly. And then we'd go up to the top and bring some shovels with us. And we were digging all of these um, water waterways and stuff on that one for our keep. Um, and then went to, it started to turn into winter because this was come February, March. T- no, it must have been a bit later, actually. Maybe about April time, I think it must have been. And then we had to do a three-day um, hike to the on horseback to the next winter ranch. And again, my friend was driving the car, which had been kind of puttied together. And we were kind of 
holding thumbs, being like, please get to the next place, all right? Because, I mean... The, you probably had enough of breaking down by that point. Oh, no, honestly. I don't know, don't know how that car survived. Um, and But she was driving a little bit too fast on one of these dirt tracks and didn't realise that our bags, the back door wasn't closed properly and our bags had flipped out. Are you kidding? No, and so we ended up having no bags for four days. And then finally, luckily, a gaucho had been riding past, which is like the local cowboys, chucked on the back of his horse. And a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend was like, oh, we found that particular rucksack and you know, I can't believe you got it back <laughs> neither can I honestly I don't know how we survived that whole journey then uh, got to the next place um and my friend Amy unfortunately had to leave a little bit earlier um to go back home and so I stayed for another two months I think on my own and ended up living with this this one gaucho called Hugo and he was like 60 something and we lived on his island so that was a how far would that have been? I think it was about four hours from the uh, in the original um, estancia we were on. And again, that was turn right at the rock, turn left here. And then eventually managed to find it. I, again, God knows how. Um, turned up at, at Hugo's estancia and he said, right, we're doing a three-day cattle ranch, but uh, cattle ride drive. And he put his horse literally on the back of his old Hilux pickup. <laughs> just walked the horse up. walked the horse up onto this pickup I have photos and you will not believe it he screwed in these little wooden panels either side of this horse it was Anglo-Arab type thing it was lovely called Lolo um, popped him up onto the, the back of this Hilux we drove for about an hour and I was fast asleep in the passenger driver well, Ray knows very well I'm quite good at that and um, passenger seat sorry and we got to the end and by this time I'd picked up enough colloquial Spanish that I could kind of get by and we were driving about an hour on this um, dirt, sandy dirt road. And suddenly I got woken up with this massive thud. And then the whole car started shaking. And I turned around, what the hell had happened? And the whole car had like slumped to one side. And the whole, whole wheel had sheared off. And we were still three hours away from where we were meant to be. In a, you know, three hours driving in an old crappy Hilux with a, with a horse on the back. And this horse, luckily, was, was all right. I think he cut his leg a tiny bit or something got the horse off and he said Jenny you're going to have to canter back and luckily a mechanic was staying at his house he said it should take you about two and a half hours and I said but Hugo I've driven this twice I don't really know where I'm going he went no here's a here's the shortcut there's a big tree here (laughs) and a big rock here's a shortcut through take my dog with you and just just canter the whole way and I was like take the dog yeah. <laughs> was the dog going to lead the way? I don't know. I have no idea what he was expecting. And again, this is all in Spanish. He just said, remember, the palier has shed off. Just palier, palier. I tell him that. And I said, okay, okay, okay. And I, there was me riding on this horse that I think I'd sat on maybe once with this dog next to me. I didn't know if it was even going to stay by my side. And we just cantered the whole way back. And I think we did it in under two hours just. That poor horse carried me like a little saint the whole way back. I managed to find it. Got in my crappy old car, had to go across the river all the way back, pick up Hugo, and then we managed to go all together in tandem and he had to leave the horse behind. Um, did, you, did you fix the car? I think he fixed it a couple of weeks later or something like that. So we had to we had to go in my car instead to, to where we were meant to pick up all the cattle from. And then I sat with him um, and we did this three-day drive. Um, and he just said, right, you get sit on that horse and we'll, we'll carry on. And you, you just camp out under the stars at night time and eat whatever... I think he just shoved a goat leg or something on one of the on one of the horse on one of the horse the pack horses, and we just had the best time ever. Just it was sounds, wonderful. It sounds like adventures that 
you don't think actually exists today in like this yeah. the modern world we live in. That it reminds me of reading the old African books of the guys who went from Mozambique to go and hunt elephants in Zambia and they would their pickup would break in the middle of nowhere and they'd make a plan. But you don't hear of stories mm. really like that anymore. Especially I mean, it, in does, it takes society. it takes balls to do that as yeah. a young woman. I mean balls as, or as nuts. a young any <laughs> as a young anyone, but particularly a young woman. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was it was quite daunting I think because I had my nutty friend Amy with me as well. We were both like I'll sod it. We just spurred each other on probably a bit too much than we should have done. And we did get into some uncomfortable situations, but because we were together at the time, especially at the beginning, we did help each other through those things. And then afterwards, I developed that much more confidence as an 18, 19 year old that I was like, sod it. What's the worst that could happen kind of thing. And and there you do live. I mean, the last estancia we ended up living on was if you wanted some food, it was a four hour drive or a 14 hour trek to get to the nearest village and you could pick up your rice, your potatoes. We treated ourselves once to an avocado and it was the best thing in the world. <laughs> but if you wanted meat, it was, you have to trek up there, go find a goat, wrangle it in, bring it down and you have to slaughter it yourself. And they're not going to help you because they just think that you're some pompous Westerner that can't <laughs> do anything and you almost have to prove prove your worth. Yeah, I got it, yeah. And I, you know, I've been brought up since, since I was very young um, you know, with my dad, who's obviously very keen on the hunting, fishing, very, you know, very good at teaching us w- to appreciate where our food is from and all that kind of stuff. But I was kind of a bit like, oh, do I want to be holding this goat while, you know, and it makes you appreciate the value of food for yeah. me. And because so, there is there's far more involved in putting it on the plate than just opening the packet. Exactly. And for me, I mean, nothing was put to waste. I made this thing called a pigeon, which is a saddle cloth that you stick over the top of your saddle. And I tanned that whole bloody skin <laughs> from, I think it took me absolutely like weeks, was this from weeks a goat? and weeks. From a goat and two sheep that had been slaughtered while I was there. So we dried them out. <clears throat> so they all got slaughtered. I honestly, and this is going to sound absolutely crude and awful, but they served me up the anus. And they went, try this. It's like the colon, the last bit of the colon. And oh, it was lovely. just the worst thing. And I was like, I'll sod it, I'll try it. Yeah. I'll try everything for once. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to promise I'm going to try it again afterwards. But but it was... Have you ever... Have you, <laughs> have you done it since? No. It wasn't good. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do it again. No. But I was like, at least I can take it off and say that I've, I've given it a go. That part of the animal I won't be eating again. No, 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 no. I'll save that for someone else can have that bit but it was it did make you appreciate it and and you're you learn I've watched the I'd watched the gauchos enough times that I knew what I was doing by that time because here in England you know you go out with your rifle and you go hunt something there they don't they earn $300 a month and that's if you're doing quite well as a gaucho they don't can't afford rifles. They can't afford this, so they just literally live off the land. And they say, okay, that particular goat has is is doing okay. It's you know it's nearing its food food time, and the rest of them they sell or you know they they chop in a bit of land for a horse. And and it's 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 really old style. It's very bartering. And- yeah, and the the house that we were living in had no electricity. It had a little river, and they covered. The, the water well with just a load of bristly brushes and you took that aside and you collected your water. If you wanted a shower, you had to wait two hours for the, the water tank to heat up after you lit a fire. I mean, it was basic living. Hmm. Um, it was like watching some of those old cowboy movies. And to me, it was just perfection because you've had nothing else to worry about. Simple lives, you know, and if if you wanted to contact your neighbour that was a couple hundred kilometres away or whatever, 
you had to listen to the radio twice a day to hear whether anybody had sent out a, a news uh, a awesome. newscast for you. So every day we'd sit down, I, think, I can't remember what the timings were. You sit down, you'd listen to the radio. Oh no, no one sent me out a message today, so it's fine. But that was the way that they communicated. There was no phones, no letters, no nothing. It was literally just, we'll listen to the radio and that's what everybody does. So And without, uh, in, there was no, that was living life without all the bullshit, without all the material stuff. Mm. Did you miss it? No, literally I didn't need anything. And I, I realised that when I then got home and I had a house full of just clutter and crap and I had a big old clear out when I got home because I said, I've just lived, in that, lived out this bag for the last, I think I was there for seven months, I think. Lived out this bag for the last seven months. All I really wanted, I had my, I had a camera with me so I did take some beautiful photos and they for me were my memories. They were my little trophies or whatever. Um, and I'm so glad I did at least have that because I had no phone, no nothing. And um, I just had literally like a couple of pairs of clothes and, you know, if they got ripped, you'd actually sew them up. You wouldn't yeah, just cast them aside because yeah. there was nowhere else you could get any replacements. Mm. And that to me, it did make you value what you had, but also made you realise that you didn't need it all. You yeah. know, I didn't have a computer, I didn't have an iPad, I didn't have any of that kind of crap. And you just think, I've just lived for this lot time and I've been absolutely fine with a tiny bag, a sleeping bag in the back of the car and and the horse that I was riding and, you know, a nice knife. That was kinda <laughs> that was kinda all you needed to get by. And I I developed this um this technique. There was a very stubborn um herd of goats and we had gone up in the snow on these horses and we'd I think we'd ridden about four hours from five o'clock in the morning. And there was this one particular stubborn goat and they were just going, this thing is bloody insufferable. I don't know what to do with it. Um, it keeps running off and it won't follow the herd like a normal goat should. So I ended up canting after this thing, leaning down. By that, ta- the, um, by that stage, I was built like the bloody Hulk. <laughs> just from riding, <laughs> just from riding every day. Leant down on my horse, grabbed it by the scruff of its neck and the, its back end and hoisted it up onto the front of my saddle. And for the rest of them, and it started buying like you would not believe, um, but for the rest of the couple of hours, it was sat on the front of my saddle. Was it pretty chilled out? It was fine, absolutely fine. <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, I hate this bloody Jenna goat. Jenna the goat my... wrangler. And they went, you're like the bloody Hulk, what's wrong with you? And I think they still use that technique now. So things like that, is, it was just really cool that they, you know, I st- I'm still in contact with them. They've they've all got Facebook that nowadays. Oh, they've they didn't they've have... got all, all got phones Yeah, and now. honestly, it's almost quite That's sad. That's like five, six years. Yeah. It's changed fast. Yeah, and they did have these phones. They had these little, you know, a lot younger ga- uh, gouches would have... Nokia thirty three ten. Yeah, and it was literally that. But the older ones had nothing, and I almost was kind of saying, "It's almost a shame that you guys are changing so much that I you know. are getting onto it." There is that little part of it, isn't it? Yeah, because it kind of it spoils the the remoteness of it and the and disconnect the magic. and the magic. Yeah. yeah, and for me, it was magical. And I remember one uh, one evening, a friend of mine had fallen off his horse and he'd left it tied up, and we were having this this asado like a I think we we're eating goat heads or something um as you do yes one night and I, they hand, they, I literally just looked into the, this makeshift oven that was old this old metal barrel and I said oh what's for dinner and they'd open this up and it was just a load of goat heads and I was like mmm yummy, yummy. Uh, can I have the eyeballs please <laughs> yeah. no, please tell me you tried just, eyeballs yeah 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 no we had everything absolutely everything they just give you a jawbone with a little bit of meat on it and you were like mmm yummy um and I got it left up with his horse, my horse, and a load of other stuff that I had to end up bringing back. And I'm cantering on this moonlight, and I was like, I've never felt so free, all the way back to the little the little cottage thing that we were staying in. And it just was absolutely magical. And I was like, this is 
this, this is, is living. living. Yeah. yeah, this is living. I, I wonder how many people truly feel that these days. And I, I, I've had, I've had occasions where I've had just kind of what you've described, where I've been, I, I haven't had communication or with home or, or anyone apart from the people that are around me for a period of time when I've been in different parts of the world. And you do get, after a couple of, especially if you've only just arrived and you're a couple of days into your no communication when we're used to it by the second, you do get to that point where you're like, you know what, this is freedom. Mm. We think it's a freedom to be able to communicate with everybody and be able to speak to somebody on the other side of the world at the press of a button, but that, in a way, is almost... It's a tie-down. Yeah, it's the opposite of freedom. Yeah. I, I panicked. When I when I first dropped my phone, I panicked because I was like, that is all I have. That was my emails. That is my Skype back to home. That is my text back to home. What am I going to do? And then it was literally like 24 hours of going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then suddenly, I was like this is wonderful, this is magical. And I'd, I'd got given this old book from 1980, I think it's, I can't pronounce it properly, it's Shifley's Ride to the Northern, I can't even remember what the name is, but it's basically this one guy who bought a couple of Criollo horses um, down in southern Argentina and then ended up riding all the way up through um, through Brazil and up to South Northern America. And I was like, this is literally what I want to do, this is yeah. absolutely incredible. And in my own way, although I was driving from Estancia to Estancia in, in the end, in my little crappy VW, I did actually get to experience... It's like I, the modern I could understand version of it. it. Yeah. yeah, I could understand where he was coming from, the freedom he had being on his horse, you know, dust till dawn and living off the land. And, you know, and I was kind of like, this is just wonderful. And it's a shame now that people in today's society can't actually experience that because that is the reason why I now do what I do. It's because uh, I, I don't want to get into the whole, you know kind of Star Wars drone effect where you're just kind of following the sheep, following it's the crowd kind of reality. things. You, know? you say people can't do it, but there is much less of it because yeah. there are less front, well, arguably no real frontiers left to explore and discover. But there are still places like in South America. I mean, it's, it is still very much like that, although you say the technology is slowly creeping in there yeah. now. And I think there's a probably a large proportion proportion of people who might read stories like that and think that is so romantic and nostalgic, but... Not realistic. The, not realistic, and would they really want to put themselves through it with all the modern conveniences? Mm. And I think if people were forced to do it, who maybe would back out after a day or two, I think they would absolutely love it and enjoy it and embrace it for the most people if you've got no choice. But I, I think that we've almost come, for, for many people, especially if you... Uh, have grown up in a community that is pretty removed from the land, which a lot of our big cities are now. We have generations of people who have barely been in the countryside. That's just the mm. way that we've moved. I think they would probably maybe read that and think, what an amazing experience, but not necessarily want to participate in it. And that, um, I think, is sad. And also, they probably think it'd be completely unrealistic in today's today's kind of world. I just, I don't think that that people actually realise that you can still do that kind of thing and you can get complete remote and you can experience what I think I regard biasly or not as as real living yeah and I, I would agree you know I, I just find it quite sad almost when you, you go out to dinner nowadays and you've got a whole family sitting around to dinner and they're on their phones I find that just tragic but that is common That that is the default position these yeah. days yeah and I'm such a foodie and I bond with my family and my friends and the people I love over food 
which is why I do the hunting aspect of things is because I love that whole kind of from from point of seeing an animal all the way through to it being in my mouth it is I've done every single thing of I've done it with my friends or I've done it with my boyfriend or I've done it with whatever it may be and you have been a whole part of that and you have then sat around and you've not included your blooming fern you've not had the technology you've just gone out and you've done it yeah there I suppose the society we live in now is really a society of convenience because even small things like if we look out my window there there's a pile of uncut wood which I've gone and collected and then there's cut wood in the woodshed which I need to fill up before winter comes unless you've cut your own wood you cannot appreciate a warm house in the same way I don't care what you say oh no I I appreciate it It cost me money to fill the oil tank no I'm sorry Mm. unless you've had to stay warm as a result of the sweat and tears of going and getting wood in the middle of winter when it's bloody cold, which is just bad preparation, then you don't fully appreciate. And there's so many parts of our lives these days, if from food, like you were explaining there, to heating, to even shelter, which we take for granted and don't fully appreciate, until you go back to a stripped-down society Mm. like your experience in South America or um, some of the, the time that I spent in Nepal or India. You've got to go to those countries, but not as a tourist as such, as one of the natives. You, mm. you kind of have to be native. Yeah, 100%. Uh, You have to get be there long enough to, to be one of the natives yeah. in order to fully experience it. I think there's a lot of people go on... I always say to people, it's very easy to go on holiday to a country and think a place is... feel like you've experienced it and other places is, is awesome. But imagine actually having to live and work there. That's how you appreciate what a country is like. Which is why you actually have to often spend the time there to actually meet the people and be accepted by them and and actually start in their their you know what they do day to day, not yeah. just what they're doing to entertain you for the exactly for the week or, yeah yeah. Because when I got back from Argentina, I ended up living and I'm in I'm in the southeast of England. I'm in where I live, and it is everything is at the. the you know your fingertips I, if I want to order something it'll be there next day on Amazon yeah. or I could pop out to the shops anywhere and I am in the countryside granted but still it's the not nearest that town, far away though yeah. the nearest town's only a 20 minute drive and I got back and I was living in this tiny little cottage and I mean there's a photo it's hundreds of years old this little cottage no central heating it had a little log burner downstairs that dad and I fitted and a little open fire upstairs and again, we'd have to go out. We got our old, the old series one, shoved wood in the back of it, and we chopped it all down and prepared it and filled the log, the log store with it. Grant, I did order a bit of coal. Not gonna lie. <laughs> I have a little bit of coal. It supplements yeah. my wood. Um, but I managed to keep that log burner going for three weeks straight without it ever dying, because you know what an awesome satisfaction that oh, is. Oh, that was good. You know, when you wake up in the morning and yeah. you just, the embers open the yeah. grate. And there's nothing like have. There's nothing like natural that natural heat coming off a fire. And I can't stand radiators now. And everyone comes into my house and goes, oh, bloody cold. I'm like, sorry, I just don't like radiators. Put a jumper on. Yeah, yeah. People are soft. (laughs) The snowflake society, if you to use a common phrase these days. And it is, it it was such a pleasure having that. And it was, again, the satisfaction of coming back and and having my little log burner there, my little open fire upstairs that I knew would only last, if if I really got it going, would only last five hours. So I'd wake up in the morning being bloody freezing again. But, at least that was, you know, I felt like I was, I was doing it for myself, if that makes sense. So how, how was your return to normality, for want of a better phrase? Having returned from that, because that kind of experience, it total from, if I'm to project my own experiences of, I, I've never done quite as long a stint as you've done, but 
they do shape you. Those kind of experiences shape and change the person that you are a little bit. How did you react to that when you came back in terms of the direction that you wanted to take forward? It was almost a bit of a slap in the face coming back because I, I flew straight to New York to see my family. Oh, wow. That's a and complete I like, reversal. I know. And I was going, what on earth You needed rehab this? in between. I did. I did. And I got there and I was going, oh my goodness, what on earth is going on? You know, it's too noisy. There's just so many people. There's and lights. Yeah, the lights, everything. And, and But actually, we're only there for 24 hours and then we flew to, flew to Pavinyatuk which again Where's is in the now? middle of nowhere in um, Canada. It's an Inuit population. So we'd, I'd gone from Argentina to almost a similar layout of life where we're out in Pavunyatuk and you'd fly in, flown in this little twin otter over to, to where these Inuits stay. And again, you know, there was women walking past whale heads and they'd use that whale and they'd fed the whole community. Yep. And there's people going, oh, whale hunting's evil and this and the other. Yes, in certain circumstances, I do agree it is. But the way that they do it, they feed their whole community with it and they eat everything. everything. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff I've eaten with the Inuits is absolutely just out of this world crazy. And they, I can't remember what it was called, but there was this fermented seal blubber that they served us up once. And I said, I'll eat, I'll try anything once. That I will never go near again. Um, it was just awful. They loved it. And what I thought, thought was, quite, <laughs> was quite funny was... Dad had gone out there and um, I, the first time I'd, I'd gone out there, I think I was about 14. Um, Dad had, was working with um, Air Inuit at the time. And uh, so okay. we'd, we'd flown over um, and we were living there and they'd flopped this car- raw caribou leg on the floor on the ice. And, you know, staying in the, in the igloos at night time and we just cut off a little bit, eat it raw. And it was delicious. It was amazing. Completely raw. Not, not dry cured raw, or anything. Nothing. Completely raw. Oh, it was wow. just a bit frozen. Um, they'd whip up these fish and it was fresh sashimi and um, we had ptarmigan there yep. that was raw as well but they'd cook the stomachs or okay. the, the corn pouches they want the stomachs the corn pouches um, and they'd eat that and um, what else and then there was the whale that you'd chew and that was raw as well I've had whale before but I didn't eat it raw it was very good yeah and it was delicious it was very nutty shall I say I found um, it a bit livery yeah yeah yeah, but this this fermented silver blubber wasn't particularly. It doesn't sound favorite. very tasty. <laughs> it was just smelled like death. <laughs> and so we went out there, and we were there for a, I can't even think a couple of weeks, and we were fishing for Arctic char, and that was hot and that hot smoked, and it was just incredible. And so that at least kind of gave me a little bit of mm. of R and R, let's say, um, in between it, and then going back home again. Um, but their their lifestyle again is incredible yeah that's amazing that's an amazing i've had a little inklings of that kind of culture but not not fully not not full experience of mm. of the inuit culture but again it's, it's modernizing a lot as well i mean the, from the first time i went out there age 14 till the last time i went there a couple of years ago it changed so much they've all got tvs in their houses and they've all got this that, and the, like all of these modern technology things and you're like what like, it's such a show almost and i understand why they're so separated but but they've got, they had such a lovely community feel. Yeah. You kind of think, you're, you know, it's such a shame it's, almost. It's this weird dichotomy that we have where everybody is striving for progression. And we in the, in the, the more Western world that is industrial revolutions past and, you know, we're in the most sort of advanced societies in the world feel for some reason that societies and cultures that are behind us in terms of their sort of evolution want the help to catch up mm. Mm. but do they really no. i mean you look at i envy I, them more yeah, I, I envy them more you you look at uh pictures of 
very remote Amazon tribes, and they're the happiest people in the world. Mm. And you, you hear people turn around and say, "Oh yeah, but life must be so hard because they have to go down to the walk down to the river and collect the water for themselves, and they've got to make they've got to make their their own houses and refix the thatch roofs, and they've got to go and hunt their own food." And I understand why people think that. And yeah, that's a lot more difficult than opening the tap like we would do here and suddenly I've got water. But that is their day-to-day life. They don't have all that superficial shit that we have, that we need all this convenience so that we've got time to go and watch Coronation Street. (laughs) And it's a lot more living satisfaction, I'd have said. And from experiencing both of them, I would rather pick up that lifestyle any day. It's quite arrogant in a way that we perceive that their lifestyles should be yeah. more like ours. Yeah, and I'd much rather go back to that. So would I. And I almost hope I almost one think day I was around. born at the wrong time. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. I'd rather be going around on a horseback and living off the land. And and I think that's that's the issue we've got into now is is from living off the land 100 years ago, 150 years ago, whatever it may have been. And that was the way that we lived, you know. Whereas nowadays, you go into the supermarket, you pick up whatever you need, you order stuff off Amazon, you order this, you know, and everything's at your fingertips, but it's actually not particularly satisfying. You've not any, done anything for yourself. You've ordered your wood in or you've mm. turned on the radiator or, you, you know, it's not actually... I, I always think of it as um, I'm always hunting for life stories. Mm. So you you buy something that you think is making you happy. And I'm guilty of this as well. I buy a new rifle because I think it makes me happy. <laughs> and it does momentarily. But how many of the things that we we do today in modern society and purchase as part of our sort of strive for happiness are stories that are worthy of telling? And if you sit around a dinner table and have conversations with people and you're, you're interacting and telling interesting stories... It is always about life experiences. Mm. You know, how many people are going to talk about that? Well, I, was, I might correct myself here. I was going to say how many people are going to talk about that awesome time they went out on Friday night and got pissed. But I actually know people who will recount <laughs> particular times they got hammered. But you know, that is it's just a it's a bullshit story. You know, what is? Yeah, it's, it's fun to do that every now and then and let loose and go and yeah. drink a bit too and much. And we're all but, guilty of it. And we're all guilty of it. But if I think about the, the the highlights of things that I've done, it has always been those slightly off the wall, far re- as far removed from this sort of modern world that we live in. And those are the stories that stick with me. And when I are telling people over dinner or conversing with stories over a beer, those are the things that people find fascinating. And that's why I wanted to speak to you about your South America experience, because that is going to be way more fascinating than the day-to-day in your cottage in yeah. England. They're With no ones, disrespect yeah, to your no, everyday no, day-to-day cottage in England. They're the ones that set England. you aside, set you apart from normality. It does. And normality is overrated. Yeah, I completely agree. And the more weird and wonderful things that you can achieve in, in one's life, I think it makes it way more exciting. And I, I want to continue doing that. I want to go back to Argentina. I want to go explore other places. And I want to go and do things that aren't requiring a bloody mobile phone. And, and I'm I'm guilty of it. And I get stuck, to, are, you get yeah. stuck to your mobile phones. You get stuck to your technology. And actually, you don't get any... It doesn't give me any kind of warm, fuzzy feeling in, inside. I heard someone say something recently, so I'm not sure who I'm stealing this off, but it isn't my own. So you, you want to live a life where you're common amongst uncommon people. Yeah. And there's, you know, looking for the things that really mean something. Because the vast majority of people, sadly, they, 
honest, I honestly believe that the vast majority of people in Western society never truly live anymore. Mm. No, I'd agree. And that's with a you. sad reality. What was so, lovely was when I was um, with the Inuits that time, and my dad had said, "Oh, I'm a bit fed up of eating all this raw stuff all the time. I just need something a little bit more Westernized." And he went into the, the local, I say, supermarket very lightly. A little tiny shop. Um, so the dog, yeah. <laughs> the dog's peeking through the window, wanting to be part of the podcast. That was a distraction. And he he headed up and he got some of that awful plastic cheese, you know, the oh, stuff yeah, that you yeah. rip out of the packets, yep. and he stuck that in between two loaves of kind of Hovis bread, and then gave it to one of these Inuit guys. And the minute he took a bite of it, he threw up. Really? And and I was like, that's crazy. I mean, just all of this kind of processed crap it's and he's so not us. used to it yeah. and the body was just like immediately don't want this in my system and that does that is quite telling i think that you know some of the stuff that we're we're putting into our bodies whether it be food or whatever it may be that we're just so used to it now and almost we should go about back a bit more simplistically i think there's a very good reason why um increasingly we uh we're facing uh, food intolerances. I was actually talking about, I think it was with my brother actually the other day, and he had read the piece, so I can't really give you much more input. I, if he was here, he would uh, he would tell you, but we, uh, as a Western society, are increasingly, increasingly have um, food intolerances. And I think a lot of that, they've put down to this processed food that we tend to eat all the time. Mm. And, and, I, and it's not necessarily very good for us. I've noticed a lot, even between my generation and I'm saying I'm 24 now and my so sister's generation <laughs> and my sister's generation and her friends a lot of them have these little allergies and they have all kinds of issues and eczema and this kind of stuff and even in my day which wasn't that long ago I know but us country country kids were outside playing with chickens and animals and not washing your hands not washing your hands and probably eating all kinds of horrible things and um you know, we, we, we did have, we were always filthy and running around and playing outside. And now all these kids are playing on their iPads inside. You kind of think, well, it's I wonder definitely, why. Yeah, it's definitely going to make a difference because you build up those intolerance, uh, you build up those tolerances, sorry, yeah. um, to bacteria and dirt and just the the normal shit that you would come into if you were to walk along a river line. Yeah. yeah which yeah, is yeah. what we used to do as a kid and play in the stream and make little dams, just normal kid stuff or it was normal for us yeah. when we were growing up and but I'll you're right if you spend if you spend all, most of your formative years going to school and coming back and sitting on your ipad yeah. it can't be good for you and i was actually even reading something it was actually in national geographic the other day it was a fascinating really long article about sleep and how this uh this advent of smartphones and tablets is ruining our sleep because we have this backlit screens that we're going to bed watching all the time uh, and they have there's, there's some pretty strong studies that have linked um, loss of sleep to early onset dementia. Wow! Because because of of chemical process that I can't remember. <laughs> I read. But it's to do it's it's basically to do with your brain relaxing mm. um, overnight, and we're not getting the same. We're actually getting I don't know was it a decade? I think we're we're getting two hours on average. Uh, we're getting two hours less sleep a night than a decade ago. Blimey, and that is quite a big old difference. It's a huge difference, yeah. And so we're starting to see the effect of that in our society now. And it's and, and again, with if you're going back to the food the food um, industry and stuff like that, everything now is pumped full of hormones and chemicals and, you know, antibiotics, antibiotics yeah. and anti-salmonella this and anti-whatever that. Colouring. 
yeah, yeah. And, you, and you just kind of think, I mean, salmon, for example, shouldn't really oh, be wow. that colour. <laughs> There's a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, and you just kind of think, I'm not surprised that we're, you know, we find because we've been so kind of prone and just shoved on the straight and narrow and this is what you meant to eat and this is what's socially acceptable no wonder then people who aren't educated about it think that us going out and taking one deer off the land is then actually really evil and really like not not accepted by society yeah. and it's not generally no, no it isn't it really isn't especially, especially not here in the uk in the uk yeah especially in the UK. I, I want to get to the hunting side um, just shortly. I want to just carry on the timeline now. So we got to your, your cottage, you're your back, you've kind of acclimatised again. Yeah. So at some point we must be getting to what is now your, your business and livelihood, which is your sculpting. Yeah, Let's so back I came back and while I was away, I was contacted by the Fleet Air Arm Museum who had obviously already purchased the, the, the first sculpture of, of Henry Allingham. And... Um, they said, well, we'd like you to do one of Eric Winkle Brown, Captain Eric Winkle Brown, um, who's revered as Britain's greatest test pilot. Mm, incredible man. He's flown the most amount of aircraft out of anyone in the world, did the first jet landing, and um, records that aren't ever going to be broken again. And um, they basically said, we want you to sculpt him from kind of 1940s depiction around that era. And I was, think, 1920 at the time, and I'd got the email. Where I was incredible away. privilege. Yeah, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. Maybe actually I could do something with the sculpting mm. thing. And when I, was a, uh, when I got back, more people said, oh, we wouldn't just sculpt, sculpt our dog. Or, and I'd sold a couple of roe deer heads that I'd made. I love your roe deer heads. <laughs> and, um, and so I was like, hmm, this could actually be a goer. I've, you know, you've always been put on the straight and narrow from schools and you've got to go to university, you've got to do I this, and you've got to do that. Yeah, I know and what you mean. And I had been told, oh, Jen, you know, you're a bit of a wildflower here. I think you ought to, I thought you think you ought to go to university just to kind of steer yourself a bit. And I was like, why stick to convention here? Yeah. If I want to go to university, I can go when I'm 50. Good on you. So I carried on with the army application and I got my place. And then they said, oh, actually, now you can come to your 30s. So I was like, okay, don't need to rush that one either. Let's just put that on the back burner just for a minute. Let me just explore the sculpting thing. And as the months and years went on, I was getting more and more work and it was getting more exciting and bigger commissions were coming. And on my 21st birthday, literally on my birthday, I had that, um, Captain Eric Winkle Brown's bus was unveiled and he and um, BBC Young's Kirst, uh, BBC's Kirsty Young came out with a birthday cake and they were like, happy birthday. Also, this is our being unveiled. And I was like, this is the best 21st ever. <laughs> I can't have asked for anything more cool. Um, and then after that, I just wanted to do more and I wanted to and I was always being told oh you're too young to do that you're too inexperienced and I was like watch me kind of yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and prove you all wrong and uh here you I am you must have had great support from your dad though um to not be pressured down the university route because I know, I know exactly what that what that is like and yeah. there's an expectation both from family and also from school from education but you'd obviously you'd had a bit of time out of the education to kind of remove that yeah. pressure of it to to do exactly what you've just described, that sort of set in stone route. If you're half decent at school, you go to university. That's there is no other choice. Yeah. But you, I mean, you. And I got told by one of my teachers, mindset. I don't even think you should go on a gap year. I think you should go straight to university because otherwise you're not ever going to go. Yeah. And I was like, you know me too well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm glad I didn't listen to that. And my headmistress has come back since and been like, I'm so glad you didn't and I'm so glad you did what, what you did because otherwise you wouldn't be here now, um, to, you know, doing these fantastic sculptures and, and whatever and, and living the life that was really made for you um, because I wouldn't have suited that kind of no. path. Um, no. And I, it, Dad was fantastic and he just said, Jenna, 
there's no bloody time frame on these things. Go when you want. My mother was a little bit opposite. She was like, I think you should go. I think you should go. And I was like, nah, I won't listen to you. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of did what I found, what, what felt right. And then just carried on kind of pootling along and, and probably doing things that I was probably too inexperienced for, but I pretended that I was. But you just made it happen. And I just, uh, yeah. I think that's a, that's a great life experience lesson to people to the we have a lot of younger younger people listening to this and we we've covered sort of uh i can't remember who it was we had on a podcast it was a bit of a oh no i know who it was it was kim hughes um gc uh who who was on a couple of weeks ago and he were talking through his early life and sort of his life decisions and sort of life lessons and advice for younger people is do what you're passionate about because i think one of the other great failures of the the landscape and world that we live in now, not just in this country, but in most of the the Western world, is this regimented structure of mm. expectation, yeah. which is just so much BS. You do not have to, and I've been through the university system, and you know it, it was fine. I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be sat where I'm sat right now, and I love what I'm doing. But if I was to rewind time, I probably wouldn't have done any of it. So I, I'm kind of contradicting myself because I'm saying I wouldn't change it, but uh, but I would change it. I, who knows what path I would have been on? And you made completely the right decision, obviously, because of where you are now. But I think that needs to trump everything else is be passionate about something and drive towards something that you want to do rather than what everybody else expects that you should do. I completely agree. And I, I was always kind of... I think I was probably a teacher's nightmare in the in the sense that I was always a bit more kind of oh no it'll work it'll be fine like everything will be all right and we'll kind of just kind of we'll shut our way through these things and 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 you know I I ended up I, I find it quite sad almost that a lot of my friends have gone and they were, we have to, it's a be all and end all if we don't go to university yeah. and I am going to work in London for a couple of years and then I'm going to move down back down to the to, to Sussex that was me. or Ken. that was me <laughs> and and that's just that's just life that's the way that, that it works yeah. and I was like why does that have to be the case yeah. why do you have to just stick to these formalities and stick to this kind of confirmation um and now, kind of a year or two later, they're all going, oh, I just hate the city. I can't do this anymore. I want to be back in, in, in East Sussex or back so in So many people end up down that road. Yeah. And that was that was my very naive thinking as well. I, I left school a year early. So I was 16 years old when I left high school. And I got my place at university. So I was 17 by the time I got to university. And my great ambition was to go study economics, become a fund manager and retire at 30. <laughs> I'm 31 now and I'm definitely not retired but I managed uh, very quickly having done exactly what I wanted to do pretty much apart from uh, a little um, visit away from university uh, before I finished I got the job in the city that would have taken me down that route mm. and I, I worked in London and other parts of the world in finance and that's where I would have gone a lot of the guys who I worked with at the time that's exactly what they went on to do they're fund managers in London right now and I don't know any of them that truly like their lives. Mm, or really. truly, seriously They're happy. Truly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the exact thing. I got one old, old um, swimming friend of mine who I had no idea at the time, back when we were like 12 years old, that he actually liked field sports. I guess we were too busy racing and competing against each other. Um, but he lives there now and he's got a very, you know, very good job for a big company. But the, the one thing that he wants to do all the time is work his dog and go hunting. Mm. And 
I do that when I walk out my house every yeah. day. But he lives in the middle of London, so he's always. And a lot of those people there are, are are striving for a future where that's what they can do, and that's what I was. I thought I was going to do. I was giving away that part of my life. So that the later part of my life, I could do that every day. And you get into that city ambition where it's, it's uh, as long as I work really super hard now, yeah. when I'm 50, 60, I can retire and then I can do And then do all that, that. stuff you want to do. And I do that every single day of my blooming life. Yeah. And my dogs come everywhere with me and I can pick up my gun whenever I fancy and, and, and take myself off into the countryside and do what I want. Yes, I work hard too, but equally I can play really hard. And that for me was kind of I just I it is almost a shame and they you know your friends co and they work in the cities and they try and convince themselves by convincing you that their jobs are the best thing since sliced yep. bread and then a year later they go oh actually this is an even better job and I'm here now yeah and you're like it's well, this continual cycle of yeah. searching for this perfect ending that never actually that really never really materializes and one thing that I've certainly learned in the last couple of years is you really have to join. There's nothing wrong with searching for a sort of a perfect or the, the future that you're trying to strive towards. Everybody has to strive towards something, otherwise you'd never really make any progress. But you have to enjoy the journey. Yeah. And if you are not enjoying the journey to get to the end result, then I think you need to probably have a really serious evaluation of your life. Yeah. Because most of it's the journey. In fact arguably all of it's the journey yeah. so if you can't enjoy that part of it yeah I mean, where does it, it stop yeah. where does it stop otherwise and where is that if you're going from a to b where is that b point you want to you want to enjoy because you'll never be happy no like eventually when you get there i know there's so many examples of this i can actually think of um a guy who's long since uh long long since dead now and he lived that life of continually go trying to just do that one more deal, work that one more year, and then he had a heart attack at his desk at 50. Yeah. Or I think he was actually even a wee bit younger. And it's such so a he shame. never he never got to the end, and I don't know how much of the process he actually enjoyed. There's that really incredibly kind of hard-hitting story of, and I can't remember who it was, and I can't remember if I'm even going to relay it properly, but a guy uh, was sitting in his plane and it was going down and it was crashing. And the last thought he had to himself was, oh my goodness, I have a cellar of wine that I've been saving for the perfect moment and I'm never going to bloody drink it now. And actually survived the plane crash and went home and went, sod it, I'm going to open up this really nice bottle of vintage wine because I could be dead tomorrow and I could, you know, why not enjoy this journey when I'm looking for that final, at the moment I've just been looking for that final potential perfect moment and I don't even know and if never, it exists. Yeah, maybe it doesn't. So, and that's always my excuse when I buy another Land Rover. Yeah. Because you've got to live in the moment, right? <laughs> or I buy a bottle of wine that's too expensive. <laughs> so your, your sculpting has, I mean, it's just, it's grown and grown and grown. I mean, recently you've done some freaking awesome stuff. I mean, the, the, the Jim Corbett story, I actually, we talked a little bit about that with Mark, I think, when I interviewed him in Ewa. But just tell how that came about, because a lot of our listeners to this podcast will have heard us talk about Jim Corbett with a few other people in the past. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've been incredibly fortunate in my relatively short career, and the fact that I am so young. But I have worked hard, and I have kind of put myself out there quite a lot. So I've been this this year that just came about. I, I sat down with Mark um, Newton from Rigby, and I said, "Mark, I've got this really cool idea, and you've got some amazing Rigby heroes." Inverted commas, the people that have shot with Rigby. So this was your idea. We were chatting about it at um, Gaucho the restaurant in yep. London <laughs> I, I've been there once yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine bought me dinner there <laughs> yeah and, and I, I dad was there um, talking about a new rugby bipod which is going to come out later this year 
And actually, I put that idea into Dad's head. I was like, you need to make a rifle, a rifle for Rigby and it needs to be all leather clad and really mm. sexy and really kind of my kind of style. <laughs> and I'll help design it for you. And I said to Mark, I've had this idea and I think it would be really cool if we worked together on this. And he went, funny you should say that because I've actually been thinking about kind of honouring the Rigby heroes and maybe we should go down this route. I can't remember the initial idea and I can't remember what it was, the actual, you know, the, the spurring on moment for this was. But we ended up getting the, the Let's Do Rigby Heroes edition. So I've started off with Jim Corbett, who obviously is incredibly famous for his his Tigers and he's got Man that. Tigers, yeah. Yeah, and so the one of the most kind of moving stories, of, I suppose, is the, the Chowgar Tiger. And I said, well, wouldn't it be incredible to capture that particular moment? And obviously you have his rifle that he, there's 275 that you, he shot that actual animal with. I have held it. Yes. Yeah, and it's absolutely beautiful. And still over a hundred years later, it, look, you know, it looks like it's barely done any blooming work. And you think the amount of, of things that that... The stories the that stories that gun behind could tell. that gun. And um, so I thought, well, I'm going to sit there and make this and, and I'll come out to, to SCI with you. And This was last year, this, wasn't it? This yeah. was the year, yeah. yeah Oh, this year. This year. This year. And it won't be ready, but I'll be there and I'll be a good storyteller. And I know most people that go there anyway know about Jim Corbett because mm. he's such a he is such a hero to so many people. And that can be the start of our our Rigby Heroes edition. So um, great place to launch it. Yeah, and and I hadn't got it ready and it wasn't finished and it was you know just literally a kind of few smushes of clay together. And now finally I've got it cast. Um, edition. Does it look one. like Jim Corbett? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. So. Um, but kind of desk, oh, you have to have a big desk for it, but desk crop size, it's an addition of eight because he shot it eight paces away. Um, it's that the classic scene that's on the front of his book, isn't it, where you see him and he's got the rifle up and the tiger's there. Yeah, so yeah. the story was absolutely incredible and he'd been searching for this particular tiger for, for ages and it had killed, well, eaten so many people, killed so many people and months and months and months had gone by and he was going through this, it, it, he'd killed um, its... It's um, child or cub. Cub, word was. It's cub, um, which wasn't actually a cub. It was just a kind of sub adult type thing. Um, and uh, the lion, uh, tigress, should you say, was had no claws and had a chipped tooth, and so obviously humans were a much easier prey for mm. it. So you know, it was just living. I think it had a big abscess, didn't it? Yeah. And it wasn't in best of shape. And he had been going after this particular tiger for a really long time. And then was going through the uh, the jungle, and on his way through, he picked up these these eggs, and he wanted to add them to his collection. Oh, I love the story. Yeah. So he had these two little eggs in his hand, and one of them was much rounder, and one of them was much more oblong. Um, and they were in his left hand, and in his right hand, he had this two seven five, which is arguably quite a small small caliber. Yeah. And anyway, came across in this river ravine, across this this tiger just laying down, staring at him. And they do arguably say that these eggs actually saved him because if he maybe had his left hand, he'd have put his hand up to the gun much quicker and might have spooked the tiger a bit a bit easier. But he said, I don't know how long it took me for, to spin around with my right arm outreached holding this this rifle. And holding a rifle with one hand isn't it's the not easiest easy. of things no. if you try it. And a lot of people do when they come to the rugby stand. They, they kind of put this priceless rifle out with one hand and, trying and to see. Trying re- to yeah. reenact it, yeah. And, um, and, then, and then shot it. And this... This story, I think, is just so fascinating. Um, That's okay. Your dog's just eating some leftover vegetable cuttings <laughs> <laughs> at the window. <laughs> Staring at us. Um, and I just thought that was such kind of a magical scene and such yeah. a... You so does, he make have it the, up. does your sculpture have so the So he's egg? got the eggs in his hand. <gasps> Incredible. So, I mean, it is 
very it's it's not massive by any means it's it's quite little and i made it with literally dentistry tools because i wanted it to be something you could have in your house yeah and so the first one went to the gentleman that, that bought the um the the corbett edition rifle that that went to the, auction. the auctioned one yeah yeah a couple of years ago and so i just think that's so magical that his then scene depiction in bronze is now with that rifle that's, that's also got the cool. scene depictions on it so four of them have now gone and now it's finally cast i can actually show the other people that were interested what yep. it's now going to look like as well so it's been a really fun project to be involved in and obviously SEI for me was fantastic because I do a lot of work along that kind of route with my dad with Spartan and obviously a lot of my clients are from that industry anyway because they're so passionate about the animals and about these wonderful stories of these hunters and and that kind of thing that the two go really hand in hand nicely so that hence the road deer and chamois and this kind of thing, sculptures like that. So, so you're not going to be changing career direction anytime soon and going I'm back to university. I'm not planning on it. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, really not planning on it. Because that 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 whole army thing was you were saying about the university thing. And a lot of people it does suit and it does mature. And I remember I was told you're very it's very unlikely that you're going to get your place offered, uh, you know, at Santos because you haven't had the experience. And I was like. Mm, let's just see about that yeah, let's look at my life experience. I'll tell you my stories and you can tell me yours yes you've gone out for a lot of drunken nights and you've spent four years or three years at university but actually the life that I've lived has been way more kind of real yeah arguably than, yeah I mean there are things that I should yeah to qualify the university statement there are things if that is going to be your career direction and your passion you have to go to if you want to be a doctor or an engineer yeah you, you've got to go to you university to. Too. my cousin's a, a doctor used to live here but now lives in New Zealand and he he found he changed his career actually from engineering to that because he found a passion and you have to do that but it's all, nice to know it's not the be all and end all exactly, for everybody yeah. it don't I think yeah, the main thing from that is don't feel that you have to do it if yeah. you think that there's something else you want to do. Mm. So what's what's coming up for you in terms of, have you got any other big, oh no, hang on, I tell you, there was something I wanted to ask you about that is now in the past, is you had one of your bronzes auctioned for a, a very large amount of money for a very good cause. Oh, so which is an incredible story. I mean, I was blown away by the amount. <laughs> so I was, I was contacted by Tower Gate Insurance Company um, back in... Um, when was it? I think it was September last year. And it was this particular gentleman. He phoned me up and he said, oh, I've been following your career, your sculpture career for, for a while now. And I don't know how they found out about me or whatever. And I'm sure there was plenty of other more qualified sculptors that they could have chosen. But they said, you're a young, enthusiastic sculptor. And we'd really like you to be involved in a particular project. And it was after the Manchester bombings back in May last year. And he said, I've come from a tiny little um, area in Ireland where, you know, our community is everything and we don't have very much or we didn't have very much and we didn't have everything accessible. And this particular girl had, had come from Barra, mm -hmm. so in the Hebrides, and it's a thousand people on this island. You, The only way you can access it is either by a six-hour ferry, I think it is, or you fly over and you literally land on the beach and it's the only yeah. beach landing in the world. Yep. And it is incredible, beautiful place. You've done it, have you? Yeah, no, yeah. three times, I think. Amazing. I've never been. No, you must. You really must. And so... um they said, well, we want you to do a kind of commemoration for her because unfortunately she got killed in the Manchester bombings. And for me, it was quite hard hitting, he, he said, because he had also come from a very tight-knit community and how, how such a tragic story like that affects a community so small and where everybody still, like almost like olden days, we're still, you know, you, know, you help out your neighbour and you, you are... Yeah, it is. It is actually a community. Yeah, you know? and you know your you know your neighbours, you know the people living next door to you, and I think that's so lovely. 
and that was what I was used to back in Argentina and with the Inuits and that kind of stuff it's you you get used to that really strong community feel and so I said well before I do anything I'm gonna I want to fly out to Barrow and actually meet her parents and just discuss with her what with them sorry what they feel is appropriate and what isn't and I flew out and they were absolutely wonderful and so hospitable and so excited about the project because they said well at least there's something good that's ongoing from this um and that must have been difficult. It was. It must it, be yeah, really difficult. It was to meet your parents. And, and I'm, you know, I haven't been particularly exposed to things like that in the past. Obviously, I've been experienced to my own issues with grief and family members passing away and stuff like that. But I've never had to. I didn't realize how in depth my career would be in a in a emotional side. I, you know, if you you talk about a sculptor, you think, oh, they just funny around with clay and get the odd thing cast. <laughs> That's what rock. you do, right? Yeah, basically <laughs> what I do ninety seven percent of the time. But actually. It isn't. It is very much emotionally involved as well. You know, if I'm sculpting someone's dog and it was their beloved pet they've had for 14 years of their life and it tragically died, and they, it is an emotional thing. And you're yeah. suddenly commemorating this thing in bronze that's going to be around for, well, my foundry say 4,000 years. Wow. And then you've got that pressure put on you that then you have to make sure that it looks like that dog and it catches its characteristics. And then it's even worse when it's a human because then you're having to portray that and and envelop all of that kind of emotion and character and Mm. substance into that one piece of sculpture and it is quite a big old um responsibility then laid upon your shoulder and then you have to converse with the family make sure that they're all happy with it and obviously it's terribly emotional for them because they're having to bring up sore thoughts and 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 things that that hurt to, to talk about and so for me it's been you're almost kind of counselling at the same time as discussing and yeah. I'm not qualified for that. So what what was your sculpture of? So so basically what then happened was after I went and visited the family I then said came up with this proposal the idea of a sculpture and they didn't want her sculpted per se they didn't want a portrait of her but they wanted something representational so I said she was really into her bagpipes and she was really good at it and she really wanted to teach her younger sister over the summer holidays but obviously never got to and that that whole kind of she you know she was only 13 14 yeah early teens Young, yeah so she hadn't gone and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro she hadn't gone and conquered the world she hadn't done any she was just a lovely young chance, yeah. yeah she was just a lovely young girl who had lovely young girl aspirations you know she loved her makeup she loved doing playing with her friends and and all that kind of stuff and all that I wanted that to then portray was kind of like a positive outlook and they had this beautiful um, area that they had in, intended for it to go to which was overlooking um, this beautiful cove which was where her old house was. So we went and visited this location uh, that they had intended for it to be and they talked about it being outside the school and outside uh, on this particular hill and, and um, this one location we visited and was like this is perfect, this is perfect. Came back um, and discussed it in front of the, the committee <clears throat> And and showed them my photos and what I collected, my ideas. And they said, well, that all sounds great. By the way, would you mind speaking to in front of 280 people at an upcoming event? And I was going, mm-hmm. this isn't part of my job role, I didn't think. And so I just said, sod it, I'll do it, of course. And uh, I think it was maybe a month later, they said, well, will you have a sculpture ready? And I said, there's no chance that I'm going to have a sculpture ready. These things take forever and I've got a backlog of other of other sculptures that I just, I have to finish. So I went there with basically a concept and a load of notes scribbled on a piece of paper. And then in this black tie event in the middle of Green Park in London, 
I had to sit there and put my glad rags on <laughs> and and talk in front of 280 people. And the whole lead up to it was just a disaster. And I had about literally about 20 minutes to get ready for the whole event oh. afterwards. And um, so, so you're all, used to running late, are you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens got you. <laughs> this is a privilege. <laughs> no, and and um, turned up and gave my speech. And there was it talked about you know what the family had thought and about you know what I was intending to do and intending to sculpt. And I said to to the company, I said, well, we've got, th- this is the one way that you can raise some funds for this because the Ardonna Foundation is also then going to be, it was set up in Ailey's name, but it's also then going to be going on and supporting other children um, in the future as a as a child's charity and, and fundraising, that kind of thing. And they wanted to raise 75 grand for the whole night. And so I gave my speech and I said, well, here's, we, we've got a few maquettes and maquette is a small version I haven't yet made. This is the concept. This is what it will, I hope for it to look like. Um, we've got a couple of these that are up for auction if anybody's interested. And they had a standing auction. And I think <laughs> about the beginning, about half the room was blooming standing. It went up in, in increments. And then by how, the how end does of... Stand? I've actually never seen a standing. <laughs> well, neither so have I. Everyone who's interested stands up, do they? They say, okay, if you're gonna, you're willing to pay a grand, stand up. Okay. So everyone stands up. If you're willing to pay two grand, obviously people don't sit down. Yeah. <laughs> and three, four, five, and they wow. go up and up and up. And by the end of it, 15 people were still standing at the, that kind of crux point. And then one of the guys came up and said, would you mind selling 50? I said, well, technically my sculptures are meant to be fine art, so I wouldn't do an addition of over 15 anyway. But yeah, that's fine. And so 75 grand was made like that. Incredible. And I also said to them, hey, I've got a couple of other sculptures I don't mind donating mm. to the cause. And they had these, it was really fancy, they had these iPads with a silent auction going on behind the scenes. And they made another 10 grand or whatever I think it was. And I think it ended up raising about 95 grand just from these sculptures alone. Incredible. And I was like, what is going on? This is absolutely insane. And the guy running it just came up and gave me this blooming great hug and was crying and it was just wonderful. And um, the, the whole evening went so well and they said, look, now you can do it in life size. So I was like, <laughs> that was great. And I, they, they did incredibly. I think they raised almost a quarter of a million pounds just that evening alone for this charity. Um, so that whole thing spurred on and I've been up to see the parents a couple of times since and I've, I'm working on the maquette now, so it's still not finished yet. So these people, from listening to this really, really powerful story and hopefully believing in me enough and what my concept was, had literally bought an idea. Mm-hmm. So that for me was quite kind of self-satisfying yeah very and that's it so yeah yeah, that's going to be i'm sure we'll get to see the pictures once that's all out and unveiled i mean how what's the kind not i'm not holding to you to a time frame but what is it two years before the full one will be? they're wanting the full one unveiled hopefully next summer okay so i've got some work to crack on you're gonna have to stop going away to other parts of the world (laughs) Uh, one of the last things I, I wanted to kind of uh, touch on to to finish this podcast, because otherwise we could go on forever. I know that you need to go north. And hopefully your dogs, no, they haven't run away. They're still, they're, they're <laughs> still looking a bit cold. The Maybe they can come inside <laughs> if they want. Is, we, we've talked a little bit about your, you, you've mentioned your hunting throughout while we've been talking now. But what is hunting to you? What does it look like from, from day to day? Because it's, it's something that I, you do quite a lot of. But it's not really as in your face as a lot of people out there. No, and I I don't do it as a sport per se. I do it as a passion and a way of life. I don't like if I can avoid it going into a supermarket and buying a piece of meat that you don't know where it's from. You don't know what the whole background is. 
I like the fact and I feel a lot of self-pride uh, if I can then provide for my friends and family of things that from point of viewing an animal and I've worked really hard to kind of get up to to the place where I can then pull the trigger to butchering it to processing it to using all that I can of it <clears throat> to then being in my freezer slash on my plate that to me gives me a really good sense of pride and I'm only taking off the land what, what I feel see fit you know nothing's wasted with me and nothing kind of go you know it isn't used let's say mm. and I don't want to be part of that whole current situation what we've got in our current um so kind of kind of i think i know what you're going for the uh the sort of the public portrayal of our community yeah and the current society where we're happy to go in and buy a packet of meat because it does it looks like meat it doesn't look like an animal that hasn't got a face Mm. if that makes sense you you don't feel people so people are comfortable with it because they can dissociate with it. Yeah, and you dissociate it from being an animal. Yeah, because you're like, oh, it's fine. It's just a pack of chicken, or it's just a blimmin' slab of beef, whatever. Yeah, I because of my experiences over my life, and because of going to Argentina, because of going to live with the Inuits and stuff, I've got such a great appreciation for my food and where it comes from, and I don't ever want to disassociate myself from that. I feel I really respect people if they can go out, if they can take what they need off of the land, no more, no less, feed their family and know exactly what has happened with that animal, where it's come from, that it was healthy, that, you know, tick off all the boxes and actually utilise that whole animal, not just go into the supermarket, buy what they need and happily throw out the rest. We've got such an issue with waste, especially in this country, of, hey, I haven't used the rest of that yoghurt, I'm just going to throw it away, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't, I don't like there, that. There is a cost to all of that. There's a cost to society. There's a cost to land. There's a cost <coughs> to resources to produce everything. Yeah. And yeah, there is, I think there is, although I think we're getting better at it, uh, understanding the impact of our consumption. I think there's a lot more people recycling than there was mm. 10 years ago. We Which actually have a recycling bin, whereas our, when I was a kid, there, there was no recycling bin as part of your household. I'm sure, I think down south, they've got like three or four different recycling yeah. bins. We've, got, we've only got one. <laughs> Uh, so which everything goes into, but as someone who makes the decision to go and hunt, you are as you are the most in control of that part of your life, that consumptive meat consumptive part, than any other way. Yeah, and and you develop such a great respect from where your food comes from. And it, I was horrified the first time I had to go out and slaughter a goat in Argentina. I was absolutely horrified. I just thought this is the worst thing ever. And then after a couple of months went by, I was like, I have, I understand now why they don't see this as being cruel or evil. It isn't at all. It's just done as quickly and efficiently as possible. And it's sustaining. It's a way of sustaining life. It is literally a way of sustaining life. They're all happy little animals. They're completely blissfully unaware. They're not intensively farmed and they haven't had horrible lives. They've been running around in thousands of acres or hectares, let's say, of, of, of literally as wild as you can pretty much get. Mm. And... You know, it's like wild agriculture. That it though, almost it? Yeah. is, yeah. And and so that was the wild agriculture side of things. And then when I got back, I was then more accepting of the fact that actually I don't feel guilty if I'm hunting. I sh- no one should be. And I'm not. I'm not a trophy hunter. That doesn't particularly interest me. I see its benefits in society, and I see. Und- I understand why people do it, and it's fantastic for for that kind of aspect and and pouring more money into into animals, different and, communities, and different, yeah. You know, with a lot, yeah, we've we've talked about. The benefits of that, particularly in places like Africa, on the podcast. Yeah, before. and I, do, I don't, I don't 
don't you know it, that's fine that's absolutely fine but that's just not where that's not I the reasons from. you do no it. I go out because I want to be able to provide my friends and family with with meat that I know where it's come from and that I know that I haven't put anything to waste and I mm. have respected the animal and I have you know done it as quickly as possible and I know if I were an animal what I'd rather be doing Yep. You know, running around like that road that we just saw. Yeah. <laughs> running I'm still around, waiting for him to pop out Having again. a lovely time running around some fields and stuff. We will be having a lovely time at this time of year because there's lots of lovely ladies running around that he's rather <laughs> interested in. <laughs> and, and in woodlands and, and whatever it may be, as opposed to being some poor, intensively farmed bloody cow that never gets to see the sunlight. And that that breaks my heart. And what you, what the, the, the aunties, let's say, don't appreciate is I've never met more animal lovers in the hunting industry than... I've met more animal lovers in the hunting industry than anywhere else. You'll never meet as many people that, for instance, I was since day dot. I've been rescuing little animals that have broken <laughs> yeah. their legs, or and a lot of people don't realise that that is what goes on. No, we are the most, the biggest animal loving community. I'd have probably said out of anybody, yeah. Yeah. you know. And for every single year, I'd have re- you know blue tits that I'd rescue that had fallen out their nests, and you know eventually let them go into the wild and barn owls and blooming baby foxes and whatever and it's not all going around and murdering and killing and being really evil that is not the case it's about understanding the landscape and the wildlife and i don't you know i'm incredibly conscious especially as we get into the winter months of the effect of the weather conditions on the animals that live around me and i you know i'm always trying to find a way that i can try and help a little bit Mm. you know that and that might be in the instances of if you're looking after a population of deer that might be (laughs) finding ones that are weak and you'd think are probably not going to last throughout the whole winter it could be a simple thing as putting some bird food out mm. which yeah. a lot of people do but you know the right kind of food food for for wild birds that not not necessarily little garden birds but gray partridges and you know whatever else might be there mm. it does give you a different appreciation yeah i completely agree and i i do have issues with i mean one of my biggest supporters i always say is one of my best friends he's diehard vegetarian and she said jenna as long as i don't see it i don't want to see it happen but I completely understand your reasoning. I completely understand where you're coming from. And I almost feel like at some point, <clears throat> in a weird, eclectic kind of way, those kind of vegetarian, vegans, whatever, the animal lovers, will almost kind of merge with the, the proper hunters, the meat will. hunters. I totally agree. we're both coming at it from the same point of view where we are wanting to preserve, you know, we're not wanting animals to suffer. We're not wanting them to live these horrible lives and be injected with all kinds of crap and, mm. And, you know, eat grain and not live naturally. And it was yeah. almost quite nice that the two do actually run together. They, they are diverging. Yeah. yeah. And when I think when there are some people who just don't like the idea of any meat that and that's slightly different. But when the reasons for making those kind of life choices of not eating meat is due to animal welfare. Yeah. Yeah. Then there is actually no difference between the hunter. Yeah. And that person. Yeah. There's no difference because that is very much the reason that so many people hunt and they're both completely ways of life they're not just i'm going to go out and do it for fun it it's is dedication it is dedication and complete passion and a way of life for these people and that's why i then completely understand the reasoning of my friend because she does it for the animal wel- welfare you know she did eat meat when she was a child but she said no i don't like animal suffering and i just choose to honor that i couldn't be a hunter that's just i just couldn't do it and i completely respect that but I, but she goes. Well, I, I respect and I understand. She used to come on our Scotland holidays every week. Oh, really? Every year. And <laughs> she sent me photos of these deer that were walking around while we were off up trekking up, living butts away on the on hills or whatever. And she'd go, "Ha! Let a deer have just come." <laughs> the the only counter to that, and 
there needs to be an increasing realization amongst people who make make that choice, which is absolutely fine and fair and well if you're making a choice of not eating meat for those reasons. But to think that your hands are clean because you're not actually killing the trigger, animal that yeah. you're consuming is just a complete fallacy and, and it's that's in where, la la land yeah. because so m- we've had this conversation many times on the podcast but it doesn't matter what you consume on the planet somewhere somehow you're going to have blood on your hands yeah yeah and it's from this, a crop it doesn't matter what it from is a soya crop, a soya crop from- or, or just barley <clears throat> you know your your wheat and your barley and in your bread, your maize, there is going to be something dying, whether it's a pesticide or pigeons being shot over crops. Or a some roe deer being run over by a... What about, what about rats and mice being poisoned around just yeah. food storage areas? Yeah. Something but is dying. The problem with our society is as long as they don't see it, they feel like it's not happening. And, you know, I, I've had people where I've been on hunts before and, they, you know, they've come up walking their dogs or whatever and they're like, oh, you're so cool and you're so evil. Like, okay, well, are you a vegetarian? Have you committed your life then to not eating meat because because of that that reason? No. You're still wearing leather shoes. You're still wearing, going down to McDonald's and eating some poor intensively farmed cow, just the same as everybody else's. But you're just not kind of... You're you're too much of a sheep to then be like, oh, I'm actually I'm actually part of this issue. Mm. They've detached themselves from it because that's the only way they can feel comfortable. Yeah. Because really, if you, I mean, even even me, and I'm very aware of it. When you start to dig into certain aspects, and I don't, I have some stuff in my freezer that I haven't killed myself. I don't solely eat things I've killed myself. I try and weight it towards that, but it's. I was going to say it's not always possible. That's a lie. With with the right will, it would be, but that's the, the choice that I make. Although I do try and get all locally sourced meat and vegetables to try and reduce that kind of footprint. But I've completely lost the track of where I was going with that. Oh, oh, brain fart. I think that's <laughs> one, one brew dog beer. <laughs> too many. <laughs> uh, one brew dog beer, too many. Um but yeah, anyway, pe- people need to to realize where what they're it's about they're disassociating kind of, themselves. Yeah, yeah, something. disassociating them. Uh, people disassociate themselves. But when uh, I know, I remember where it was. But w- even myself, when you really start to look into certain aspects, you know, even like soya, you start to look into that, and you realize the detrimental impact that that makes. And now I'm looking. Well, I I've got to pick up packets and make sure there's no soya. Yeah. Or yeah. or tuna. Yeah, you know, I I, I freaking love to eat tuna, and I still eat it, but I always make sure that it's got the right uh, stamps on it's the back, been line and it's a line core. Yeah. But even even still, and maybe I should just stop eating it because I do feel guilty when I'm eating yeah. it, and I don't know why I haven't stopped yet. I mean, I need to rationalize that in my brain, but I am at least taking some steps towards making sure that I'm eating mm. stuff that is as sustainable as possible. But we have big issues with with tuna globally, yeah, and there's lots of little things like that, and it. Yeah, it, it upsets me. Yeah, and we're all we're all guilty of it. And I, you know, on the way up here, I went out and bought a sandwich from Marks and Spencers, and I don't know where the hell that, that animal's bloody come from. We all do do it, and I can't say I solely eat that. No. And no, I don't know if anybody can nowadays, especially in the Western world as well. But as long as you're more conscious about it, like getting what you're saying about the tuna, or you know, I like to, especially over the winter months, try and I won't buy chicken. I'll 
get the feel, you know. Your pheasant, I used so. to drive my mum crazy. I'd come back with a load of pheasants and start plucking them in her kitchen. She was like, Jenna, this is so annoying. <laughs> but that There's was feathers just, everywhere. Yeah, but I'd be like, yeah, but look, mum, what I've got from it. You know, I've I've now got all of these lovely pieces of meat, and we can stop them. For Talking chicken. of pheasants, look look down at that fence line down there. Oh gosh, the dog's going to be about over six there or second. seven of them. <laughs> and um, but yeah, that's the kind of living with the change of the seasons is as best as mm. we can do and I, you know I've got fish in my freezer that probably been there a little bit too long but I've line caught myself and I haven't gone and killed a bloody turtle to do it and you know I I, I really yeah. kind of love that whole living off the land aspect and I know like, Ray my boyfriend for example he has his own vegetable garden they've got their own goats and that's proper old man that and I love it. <laughs> He's sitting at the it. table with us right now, listening, <laughs> being, being listening to us rattling on. And I just think that kind of thing is just so cool. And the, the more I can do that, and the more I can be self-sustaining, the more self-like happy I will be. And I, I think that's where we should all be going. And I, I'd love to be able to educate people and say and to be able to say that we're not all Cecil the Lion Killers and we're not all going off after this and just doing it just to pull the trigger and just to draw blood. Some of us are doing it as a way of life. Yeah, and we we were talking about um, before we actually started recording, there are people who that is what they are there for. And we as the sort of hunting community need to acknowledge that and not try and always dress it up with BS justification. Let's actually look at it for what it is and work out where it's great and where it does a good thing. And maybe criticise things that are maybe not so savoury. There is almost two types of hunting that personally I think that exist. Is there almost a sporting type of hunting where you're going out and you want to go kill a lion. Yes, it's fantastic because you're putting more money into the animals and, and helping the anti-poaching and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. That's not what I do. And there's also the other, the passion hunting, which is I do this as a way of life to feed my family and because I'm going to utilise every part of the animal and because I'd, I want to know what goes into my food system. And they're almost completely different. Mm-hmm. They're still using, you know, you're still going out, you're still pulling the trigger, you're still doing that kind of thing, but you're doing it for two different reasons. It's fine that we acknowledge that that side exists and that side exists as well, but we can work alongside each other, I'm sure, but they are different. Mm-hmm. So, and I just think that people aren't educated enough to know that there is that difference there. And they just think that we're all just evil and horrible and like enjoy seeing animals die or whatever. And that isn't the case. Mm. Yeah. And I think there also needs to be a sort of a greater realization of the the realities of a balance in our landscape, if there is truly uh, such a thing as a balance, when the human hand touches everything. And yeah. if we want to go back to a situation where we are not um, forced to kill things for management and balance, then we need to remove ourselves from the equation. Mm, yeah. Because the reality of the wild is that animals kill each other. Yeah, and they and, existed well before we, uh, yeah. we came along into and the equation And that is just well. how life is sustained. Yeah. And it will continue doing that long after man is gone. And you, you don't criticise a dog for going off and killing a rat because that's in its it's, it's instinctive, isn't it? That's in its DNA. And, and you it's look in ours. back a couple hundred years, your blooming grandparents, my grandparents, everybody's grand, great grandparents, wherever it would have been, that's the way we lived. You go we were off, all hunters. Yeah, that that is that is us in in our DNA, and it's kind of intrinsically there. So it, we don't criticise dogs for doing it. In I, I watched this. this absolute crappy video the other day and saying oh but we don't have long canines like dogs so clearly we weren't actually meant to be hunters and I was like we do have canines we do have canines yeah. and actually and they said oh 
you don't we don't have claws and we don't ha- we don't kill things with our mouths. I was like, yes, because we're intelligent enough to use different aspects. Yeah, we 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 use tools. Yeah, tools for, to make life easier and to make it quicker and more efficient. And and, and he was going on about how you know we clearly weren't meant to be hunters and we clearly, I just said no, but we are that is in our DNA that's just the way it is and people choose to live a meat-free life or they choose to live this, that's fine that's absolutely fine and good on them for doing so and good on them for sticking to their guns but it isn't you know we've all got to appreciate and respect other people's views too I always find that the most laughable thing is well we don't need to do that in a modern society <laughs> yeah. yeah but what's worse yeah yeah and now we can rewind the conversation back to your what we how we very first started, which was your time in South America. You know, what is worse? And I would say that rewinding the clock back to simpler times, where we were in control of our entire environment around us, where it was our hand that put the meat on the table, which is essentially what hunters are, is a, a much more uh, sustainable, ethical, moral way of living on the planet than the modern society that we have moved into. Yeah, I used to work at this tiny, tiny, tiny little, uh, it was almost like a little shack, and it was a cafe in, in this woods, Wilderness Woods, in, where I what used country to live. What country are you in now? Oh, in East Sussex. <laughs> and, <laughs> there was a shack um, in the woods called they, Wilderness Woods. They had this, and it was a little tiny cafe, and it was so cool, and they were very kind of, that's you know, we had locally sourced venison and locally sourced pork and everything was locally sourced everything was made on site whatever it was wonderful and they had this one guy come in and he was talking about um supermarket waste and he said we are completely completely the wall is over eyes in these kind of things you don't you do not even cannot comprehend how much thing how many things go to waste in supermarkets whether that be carrots whether that be bananas or whether that be chicken and meat and the minute that shelf life is off i i go from shelf life in inverted commas by Touch, smell, sight. Smell, smell. Yeah, yeah. Smells my well, taste. That tastes sour. Yeah, and then it, Ray hates it. I rub a bit of vinegar on it, it'll be fine. And these <laughs> are <laughs> like. Curry it. Yeah, and it'll be absolutely fine. And I, I don't like seeing things go to waste, so I'll just do everything I can or to, to avoid that. Yeah, we just shove it in a curry for a couple of hours and it'll be absolutely a okay. But the amount of, of even animal products, eggs, whatever, goes to waste because it's Good. just shoved on the on the shelf and, and the date passes. The date and passes, and, and that's it. Whereas I know that everything that I have, from the minute of pulling the trigger to gutting it and cooking up the liver and cooking up the heart, I don't particularly like kidneys, I guess the dogs or whatever, but at least every single part of that has been used and I've respected that animal and it's had a very, very quick ending. And, and it didn't have, it wasn't stamped with a sell yeah. by date. And it wasn't, it wasn't part of, it almost, it almost makes them not animals anymore. I feel like the supermarket thing, it almost oh, it makes them absolutely like. absolutely does. Yeah. I, and I think that's so sad. It's because, just because now they don't have a face and it's, it's just a, an item in a, in a, in a plastic packet, people can disassociate it from that. And I think that's such a shame. To, as a, a kind of uh, a final thought or towards a final thought to closing this up. I was reading somewhere the other day about packaging and there's this one uh, one drive and school of thought towards packaging where we need to start reducing it which is down the or at least making it 100% recyclable um, which I was actually quite this is a complete side note now but I was quite disturbed I was listening um, to I think it was a Radio 4 program about recycling and they were saying that you think that all the stuff you stick in that bin that's outside there is going to be recycled but depending on what part of the country you're in um, determines the kind of recycling plant there is. So some of them can't process um, material, like two materials. So if you have, for example, like a, 
you've bought some pasta that comes in a cardboard box with a little cellophane window. You think, oh, that's great, yeah, recyclable cardboard. Uh-uh. Some places of the country, they can't recycle that because it has a piece of plastic connected to cardboard. So whenever there's two different materials connected, so that goes straight into landfills. You've stuck it in there, but it's been it's been siphoned off in the in the processing and sorting and hasn't been recycled at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, so I have a lot of people around for barbecues all the time. I love hosting. Yeah. And I've introduced so many people to, you know, actually what you've just eaten is venison or actually what you've just eaten is hair. Surprise. Or, yeah, surprise. And they're like, oh my gosh, I thought it would be, I thought I'd hate it. I thought, and I'm really like, no, it's not. As long as you, you know, you've cleaned out well and you've done all you need to do to it, it's the, the most delicious meat you can possibly think of. Or this is hair or this is pheasant. And they go, oh, I, I thought that was just chicken. I'm like, mm-mm, it's way more juicy, way more yummy, whatever. But then... I've been shocked when I go to, uh, and I've picked up well, I've picked up my asparagus locally, and it's come in a little little tiny paper bag, mm. and that can go in the recycling, whatever it may be. But then I've been shocked when I go to friends' houses, and they've gone and bought their burgers from Tesco's, and they've gone and bought the chicken from wherever, and the amount of plastic waste you have mm. after one single barbecue for maybe even eight people, and I just it's crazy. You think it? of every single household is doing that. Yeah. It's absolutely disgraceful, actually. And well, yes, most people nowadays recycle and that's wonderful. But as you say, you don't even know if that's truly being no. recycled anymore. And this is the other side of, of the packaging is that we've got one side pushing towards uh, 100% being able to recycle, which is all fine and well. But the other side of it, which is um, designing packaging for this society that wants to continually be more disconnected to their food by not even handling it anymore. Yeah. And this was another thing I was listening to, is they're designing packaging for meat so that people can put it in a frying pan or process it to the next step to cooking so that they don't have to put their hands on the meat because yeah. people don't like it anymore. Well, you I mean, if you, I'm sorry, but yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you are not prepared to put your hands on the meat, never mind actually take the life of the animal that you're going to kill, you shouldn't be mouth. eating meat. Yeah. Yeah. Which is don't why buy almost it. people I, that shock me, they're like, oh, I don't want to go into butchers because I don't like the fact that blokes have touched my meat. And I'm like, you've not seen the abattoir. Just because you haven't seen it, you don't realise actually how horribly that animal was handled before. It's pathetic, and, isn't it? And you're How trying did to think it got into the packet? Exactly. And you just think that packaging that it's been sitting in has still been handled before it got into that packaging. Yeah. And that to me is just honestly, you know, it's, we're trying to live in this very clinical society where everything's perfectly clean and nothing has been touched or nothing has been tainted or, or got any bacteria on it and everybody's so like oh it must be antibacterial it must be this and mm. that. I must wash my chicken us. and it is and it's making us ill and people are getting more blimmin allergies and 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 I just think that's such a shame. I know because I've cleaned my meat myself. I kept my meat clean from, from the minute it's been dressed all the way through to thing. I know that my meat is clean and I know my hands are clean and I trust myself that, you know, everything's been done as well as possible. Yet you're prepared to let a complete stranger bolt an animal on the head, let it have a, you know, a stressful life in that, in that abattoir. Then someone else put their hands on it and package it and then someone else package uh, hold that package and then take it to but then you don't want to put your hands on it you don't want to put your hands on it yourself i find that absolutely ludicrous and that is the problem yeah <laughs> and on that note we will leave our listeners with that to think about 
Thank you very much for taking the time to divert your way, on, uh, di- divert to here on your way north. I'm sorry, I'm uh, to come and have the, <laughs> To come and have a podcast with us. It's been great to speak to you. I'm glad that we've had the opportunity and hopefully we have a chance to speak again soon. Hopefully we have a chance to hunt soon. Yes, that would be wonderful. And have a nice barbecue as well. Well, if you actually come on time, then we would have been. <laughs> sorry. Jenna, thank you, you very much. Some beer. Thank you so much. And that is it for another two weeks. If you would like to see what we're up to and uh, message us, email us or anything like that, then you can get hold of us on Instagram. We also put up a huge amount of pictures on there from what we're up to. And also we do a lot of stories and live videos um, and uh, on Facebook as well. And our email address is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Uh, I think the, I've, I forgot to mention the handle. So it is pace underscore brothers on Instagram. Um, the podcast Facebook page is just podcast into the wilderness. And then we also have a pace brothers Facebook page and that we put up a lot of kind of articles and uh, pictures from Instagram that get uploaded onto there. So. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to go and get involved with the, the charity auction for a whole bunch of Hornady and CZ gear that we're giving to the guys. That's gonna... We'll uh, we'll make sure we put up uh, links as soon as that uh, more details come out about that. Um, I was going to mention something else. I'm not too sure what it was now. Uh, ooh, Modern Huntsman, Volume 2 is on pre-order, so... Uh, the, our articles are submitted. They're yes. done, dusted. And our pictures are submitted and everything, so there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff from us in it. Uh, we will be bringing in a load into the country, and if it's anything like last year, if your name isn't on first, then you'll have to wait. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're bringing a lot in, but... We're bringing in a lot more It's hard, it's hard to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the, the demand for Volume 1 was so ridiculous, but there has been some people already... Um, well, actually, quite a number of people already ordered. got Volume Two yeah. on pre-order from us, yeah. so and that is the safe bet. And there's been a number of people that have also just bought them both at the same time, and they're just waiting to get them both. Yeah. So there's lots of options on the the website. Uh, it is thepacebrothers.com. Nice and easy to remember. And thank you to the people that have been leaving us reviews. I've noticed there's been uh, reviews being left, and it is greatly appreciated leaving reviews from all over the world because. Um, they're location specific so if you're from australia or new zealand or any places like that then um you'll only see those reviews from that countries and there'll be some countries it's that silly we, that they do that actually. yeah it is is silly but it means that in some locations around the world we might only have one or two reviews um yeah so if you're in, if you live in south korea <laughs> and uh, you only see one review it's because we only have one south korean listener <laughs> yeah yeah, but um, yeah, no, no, definitely leave us a review. It helps out massively for more people learning about the show. Um, I was, should we give away some um, stickers this week? Some podcast can do. stickers. Can you think of another another section of society? We've given away to <laughs> farmers. We've given away to females who are involved in hunting and fishing. Gamekeepers. We've given away to gamekeepers. Um, well, the, well, the I was going to say gun dog owners, but that's just so many that's people. So, that's <laughs> nearly everyone. That <laughs> is nearly everyone. That, that was nearly every single person. One per dog as well. Could you imagine this household? We've given out seven, seven, eight um, um, stickers in one go. Um, I'm just trying to think. What should, who should we give it away to? Um, I think we might have to. We have to leave that for yeah, the next one. We, we, we're, we're gonna. Th- we are. We yeah. will give some more away, and we will talk about it at the start of the next show. Yeah, we'll remember. We'll remember. But thank you very much for listening. Join us again in two weeks' time. 